Leviticus together. And so um, just if this is your first time here and just randomly decide to preach on Leviticus 25 this morning, um, we've been walking through it together. Now, for those who've been here and you've been walking through Leviticus with us, just kind of a an, an FYI, just for your information, um, not counting today, we've got three sermons left in Leviticus. So we got chapter 26 next week, chapter 27 the week after that. And then we're going to close it with kind of a Jesus in the whole book kind of thing. We're going to bring it all together. What we've been doing a little at a time each week, we're going to do just kind of one sweep through to connect all of it in, in, together. And then we're, we're done with Leviticus. And um, a lot of you have, um, um, I've taken it positively. But a lot of you have been like, wow, I've been really surprised at how well you've done Leviticus. And I'm thinking, I could take that two ways. I'm going to take it positively. Um, I know that I know that Leviticus is kind of an intimidating book. I get that. And uh, and when we talked about it before, most people have never heard public sermons from the pulpit through the whole book of Leviticus. Like that's just not just not something that normally happens. And so I've been delighted to do this. This has been a lot of fun. I was kind of intimidated as well. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. This is not my wheelhouse. This is a little different for me too. But this has been very enjoyable, the book of Leviticus. Like, how many times are you ever going to hear that said? Man, it was so much fun to go through the book of Leviticus. And so, um, so anyway, Leviticus chapter 25. The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in your crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, Sabbath to the Lord. And you shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. And the land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and your female slaves, your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you. Even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all of its crops to eat. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you'll have a time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. And then you shall sound a ram's horn abroad on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a ram's horn, uh, a horn throughout all of your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim it a release throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee to you. And each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his own family. You shall have a 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap in its uh, aftergrowth nor gather in uh, from its untrimmed vines. For it is to be a jubilee, and you shall, it shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its crops out of the field. And on this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. And if you make a sale moreover to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your friend, and he is to sell you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, uh, uh, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall thus observe my statutes and shall keep my judgments so as to carry them out, that you may live uh, securely in the land. 
And then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that you will bring in, bring forth crops for three years. When you are sowing in the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, but you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of uh, your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. And if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and to buy back what his relative has sold. Or in the case of a man who has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it shall revert that he may return to his property. Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption rights remain valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is not bought back from him within the space of a full year, then the house that was in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations is that it does not revert in the jubilee. The houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites have permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities, which are their possessions. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed and a house sale in the city of this possession reverts in the Jubilee for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel. But pasture fields of their cities shall not be sold for that is their perpetual Possession. Now, in the case of a countryman of yours, if he becomes poor and his means with regards to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take uh, usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him uh, your silver at interest nor your food at gain. For I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if a countryman of yours becomes so poor in regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject himself to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired hand, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee, and he shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, and, he shall, and then back to his family, and, <clears throat> and that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They are not to be sl- sold in a slave sale." You shall not rule over him with severity, but you're to revere your God. As for your male and female slaves whom uh, you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then, too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition. And out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land, they will have become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive a possession so that you can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Now, if the means of a stranger or sojourner uh, with you become sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is a sojourner with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him. Or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. 
He then, with his purchaser, shall calculate from the year when he was sold himself to uh, up to the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall refund part of the purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he sh- shall so calculate with him in proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount of the redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I have brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you how it teaches us about you and about your relationship with us and mostly and and primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, all of these Leviticus passages have been kind of strange to our Western American ears. This passage in particular is very odd. And one of the reasons it's odd, and I'm, and I'm actually, it's going to, it's, I'm going to point out an odd, a great oddity to it. And then I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to skip it. Um, not because I don't want to deal with it, but because in chapter 27, chapter 27 in a couple of weeks is almost exclusively about this issue. And so it just makes more sense to talk about that issue there instead of trying to squeeze it in here. One of the reasons why this sounds incredibly odd to our Western American ears is that it deals with the notion of owning people. What we would call slavery. And how that should work and how that shouldn't work and what regulations there are around about that and who should become a permanent slave and who shouldn't become a permanent slave and how you should treat your slave if they're temporary or if they're from the nation of Israel or if they're from foreigners or if they are permanent. And how does that relate to the year of Jubilee and uh, how much valuation is there in a slave if somebody wants to purchase them and set them free or whatever. There's all these regulations found in this chapter about those kinds of things. Chapter 27 is almost exclusively about the valuation of people in the ancient Israel slave trade. So don't feel like I'm punting, like, wow, first time in 12 years Philip avoided an issue from the Bible. We're going to talk about it a lot in two weeks. We're just not going to talk about it today because whatever I would say about it today, I'd have to say again in two weeks when we get to chapter 27. So we'll, we'll get there. But it sounds weird to read this. Like, it's just a very strange passage because the concept of the year of Jubilee, which we'll get to in just a second. We want to talk about the Sabbath year first, but the Sabbath year and the Jubilee, particularly the year of Jubilee, is a is a concept of redemption, particularly the freeing of people who are in slavery. Or a version of slavery out of their slavery. Which is a weird notion for us, because. We're in a societal reality where we just don't feel like anybody should be in slavery at all. So why would you have like a whole year set apart in a calendar to release people who are in slavery? And then possibly, listen, let's just be real. The guy gets freed in the year of Jubilee. But he hasn't gotten his life together. So the year after the year of Jubilee, he's still poor and he has to sell himself back into slavery again. If he gets to live a really, really long time, he might have to go through this twice. I mean, you know. If he's 12 when he gets sold into slavery the first time and then gets released at age 13 from the in the first jubilee and then at age 14 has to sell himself back into slavery and makes it to 64, he might have to do it all over again. 
And he might have spent his whole life as a slave. This is really weird. So, again, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when we get to, to Leviticus chapter 27. But I want to deal with the two main concepts that we see in this text that are apart from the slave notion. And that's the idea of the Sabbath year, which was for the land, and the land of Jubilee, which was for the people who lived in the land. So the Sabbath year was basically a mandate that once you get into the promised land, once you get into what we consider the the nation of Israel today, you're supposed to work the land for six years and then do no agricultural work on the land for the seventh year. Now, I play it being a farmer in my in-law's house. They have a couple of raised garden beds. And if you've tried to like raise any sorts of fruits and vegetables this year with this lovely weather that we've been having, you know, it's virtually impossible to get anything. And of course, my luck with tomatoes, it's virtually impossible to get anything with tomatoes for me. Anyway, I'm the jalapeno guy. So I can grow jalapeno peppers like they're going out of style. Can't grow tomatoes. It's horrible. But I know enough about how this works to know. If I skip a year working the garden. Probably not much is coming from the garden. Because not much comes from it when I do work it. And if I don't work it at all, well, there's just going to be weeds, you know, like because let's face it, as dry as it's been, everybody still has weeds. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so and so you can get those. but It's going to be really hard to have a harvest if you don't actually work the land. And for people who are like like true real deal farmers, there's no way you're convincing an American farmer. Hey, your whole family's financial well-being is based on you farming. Why don't you skip a year and just trust the land will do what it's supposed to do? He look at you like you're a crazy person. This is an agricultural group of people. And God is telling them when you get into the land of promise, remember, they're receiving this law while they're wandering in the wilderness. God's been providing for them the whole time. And he says, I'm about to take you into the land flowing with milk and honey. There's all this great produce there. The land produces so many great things. It's going to become your land. You're going to be able to produce these great things while you're there. Tell you what I want you to do. I want you to work the land for six years. And on the seventh year, Don't work it at all. Just let it do what it's going to do. And anything that it produces, you can eat it. That's fine. But you're not going to do like a real harvest. You're not going to cultivate. You're not going to do all the stuff that you would normally do. And here built into this law, there was a natural question that was asked. It was like, okay, so how how are we going to eat? Because it's not just the seventh year that we have to worry about. We also have to plant crops on the eighth year that haven't grown yet. So we're not going to have a harvest until the ninth year. So what do we do? And God here promises them. Now, remember, remember, this is a group of people that have been wandering in the wilderness desert. For all of this time, they watched an entire unfaithful generation starting to die off. Before the faithful generation could go in. And God has been meeting every need that they have without them doing any agricultural work whatsoever. And the natural question that Moses knew that they were going to ask was, how are we going to live? It's like, well, how have you lived out here? 
because I kept you alive. I've been able to keep you alive wandering around in this wilderness desert for all of these years. I think we can handle one year of skipping the, the, the crops. I think, we can, I think we can manage. And so God builds a blessing provision in this. I will give you a three-year yield on the sixth year. You have enough to eat on the sixth year. You have enough to eat on the seventh year. You have enough to eat on the eighth year. And then you'll have your own crops come in the ninth year. That's what I'm going to do for you. So why, why would God do this? Why would God put this in his law? Well, there's at least three different reasons. One is to cultivate faith. The Judeo-Christian religion is a religion of faith, a, a religion of trust, a religion of belief, a religion of of relying on the things that God does and not relying on the things that we do. And so when God says, you're not going to be agricultural people for this whole year, you're just going to trust that I'm going to provide for you and that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. Trusting God's provision in the absence of agricultural activity. Friends, listen, that's a small hands-on picture of the gospel. I need to eat and I need to live and I need to produce crops for trade and I need to take care of my family. And this is the kind of people that we are. And this is the way that we stay alive. And basically God's saying, there's not anything that you can do with your hands and your effort to keep yourself alive. I'm the Lord, your God. I keep you alive. And so when we come to Christ in our sin, our natural tendency as humans is to say, what good work do I need to do to be saved? Remember the great question when Peter preached his sermon in Acts. What did the people ask? What must we do to be saved? And what did he answer them? Repent. By the way, repentance is not a work that you do. Scripture makes it really clear that repentance is a gift that God gives. No person comes to the realization that they are a desperate sinner in need of a savior without God awakening them to this reality and moving them toward abandoning all that their life is in Adam and pursuing all that their life ought to be in Christ. That is a work of God. I want spiritual life. I want to live. What thing must I do to keep myself alive, to make myself alive? Absolutely nothing. Do not try to harvest this ground. I will provide for you. This is the gospel in miniature and it's beautiful. So there's faith, the cultivation of faith. Second, and this is a topic that, that, that can get a little sticky in our culture today. But God is creating equity in the gospel among all people. Notice what happens in the year of the Sabbath. Who doesn't work the land? The land owners don't work the land. But whatever the land produces, because it's still going to produce some stuff. Who gets to eat that? Just the landowner? No. Everyone gets to eat it. The landowner, the alien, the sojourner, their hired hands, everyone, whether they own that land or not. And why is that? 
Why is that? Because God makes it really clear something that I think is often forgotten in theological conversations today. God makes it very clear here in Leviticus chapter 25. The land does not belong to the nation of Israel. Oh, that was a soft, sullen amen. Mm, I must have hit a nerve, a cultural, sociopolitical, geopolitical nerve. I'm just quoting what he said in Leviticus. The land is not yours. You are aliens and sojourners with me. The land is mine. I am the Lord, your God. That's what he says. Doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. And so God takes a year out of their schedule every seven years and says, I'm going to remind you that this is not yours. It's mine. Don't grow anything, don't harvest anything, and don't keep anybody who lives here from eating whatever I give them. And friends, guess what? That's the gospel. He has torn down the dividing wall and he has made the two men into one new man. So that there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. When Christ came to spread the reality of the kingdom of God, he said, this is a global reality. I am inviting anyone who will come to come and drink of the water of life at no cost. Because I am providing the spiritual food for you. Man, buried deep here in Leviticus chapter 25 is a beautiful picture of the equity of all people in the gospel. Why? Because all people are sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. And all people need to be awoken to the reality of their sin. And all people need the gift of repentance to come into their lives. And all people need to feast on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Buried deep here in laws of land redemption and jubilee and Sabbath year is the picture that we are poor, wretched, slaved people who need to be redeemed by someone else and need to feast on spiritual food that we did not grow because it's only the grace of God that will ever save us. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But sometimes we miss beautiful things in the Bible because we've got notions about how we think things are supposed to be. And stuff like this just doesn't fit. It's a beautiful picture. So there's this faith and then there's equity. And then there's a demonstration of God's blessing. I mentioned it before, but I want to talk about it very particularly here. In verses 20 through 22, God, what are we going to do on the seventh year? What are we going to do on the eighth year? How are we ever going to take care of ourselves? Does this sound like your prayer life? God, I know that you're great and I know that you're sovereign and I know you can take care of me. And all of these things that I'm worried about are completely outside of my control. And there's nothing I could do about it, even if I wanted to. And even if I had the power to do it, I know I'd probably mess it up because I'm not God and I'm not perfect and I'm not you. But wow, I'm really stressed out about this. What are we going to do? Oh, I'm sorry. Just me. Is I'm, I'm the only one that prays like that. Come on, don't get, don't do that. That's what we do. We we wring our hands. Oh, what was me? There's a reason why nearly a hundred and some odd times in the Old and the New Testament, the scripture teaches us to stop being afraid, to stop worrying, to stop being anxious, 
to not fret. I mean, from front cover to back cover, hundreds of times, there's a reminder, sometimes graciously, sometimes aggressively, stop stressing out about stuff that you cannot control. Why? Because we as fallen, broken, sinful human beings stress out about stuff that we cannot control. That's what we do in our fallen state. And so right here, built into this law, is that response. The inevitable response. What are we going to do? I'm God's response. I'm going to provide for you like I always do. God meets our needs. Now, because of this weird world we live in, I have to like add this little asterisk and a little caveat and a footnote and whatever. That's not health, wealth, prosperity thing. God meeting your needs is not a name it and claim it version of religion. God, I need an extra $7,000 in my bank account. No, that, that's no, that's not what this is. Humanity has one great need. That's deliverance from the wrath of God and the judgment that is to come. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you have received the greatest need met. And even if your life is filled with compounded suffering the rest of your days, you are greatly blessed compared to the lost man who does not know Christ, who has his belly full and his back covered with the most luxurious clothing. And sometimes we forget that as believers. That it is better to suffer the difficulties of this broken world in Christ than it is to enjoy the benefits of Egypt and to die without Christ. Now, here's the beautiful thing, though. More times than not, God also meets your felt needs and gives you the wisdom to live in this world in such a way that you get to enjoy some comforts along the way. It's beautiful that God does. He doesn't have to, but he does. The fact that we're sitting in this air-conditioned room right now is a remarkable demonstration of God's kindness to all the people who are in this space right now in this moment. I got brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing this right now, hiding in hot rooms and basements because people are looking for them, trying to get them to stop doing this right now. They're moving the day of the week they have worship. So the authorities have to keep guessing about where they are and where, what they're doing. Because they just want them to die or be thrown in prison and to stop doing this Jesus stuff. There's people meeting in the desert under trees right now. With people standing on the outside of the worship area watching the grassy fields for wild animals that might come and try to eat them while they're having worship outside. That's suffering a little more in worship than we are right now. But God's meeting all their needs in Christ Jesus.
It's a beautiful thing that's happening. So we see God's demonstration of blessing in the Sabbath year. So there's faith, there's equity in the gospel, demonstration of God's blessing. And then we get to the year of Jubilee, this radically weird concept that's so foreign to our ears because it mostly has to do with redemption. Some the redemption of property, but mostly the release and redemption of slaves. And so it's seven Sabbath years plus one year. So we have... Sabbath year, Sabbath year, do it seven times, you got 49. And then the year after that is the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, this unique year. It also is to be a Sabbath year. There's to be no harvesting, no crops, no any of that stuff. What I find fascinating about the year of Jubilee. And by the way, I just want to throw this out there because I know some of you go back and you do a little extra research after the sermons, which I think is great. It's awesome. When you do a little extra research after this sermon today about the year of Jubilee, you'll find this one very interesting fact. There's no recorded record of the nation of Israel ever having actually celebrated a year of Jubilee. It's referenced kind of indirectly in some places, and we're going to touch on that in a minute. And they certainly haven't done it in the modern era. Can you imagine that? Like whoever built the Hyatt of Tel Aviv. Hey, it's here. You've got to give that to the tribe of so-and-so over here. You don't get to have your hotel anymore. Like, can you just imagine like the way modern Israel looks that they actually try to attempt to do a property redistribution for a year of Jubilee? It'd be wild. Like it'd be in the news all over the world. Like it'd be crazy. But, but to our knowledge, we have no recording of them actually having done this, even though they're supposed to, by the way, that's the story of the nation of Israel. Whole bunch of stuff they were supposed to do, and most of the time they just didn't do it. Or if they did it, they did it wrong. That's just kind of the way that it, that's why we have the New Testament. Like, it's like, okay, let's get this square. All right. So you have these seven Sabbath years plus one. What I find super fascinating though about the year of Jubilee is that it was celebrated in that 50th year on the Day of Atonement. The 10th day. Of the seventh month, that's the Day of Atonement. So, every year they do the Day of Atonement. But every 50th year of the Day of Atonement, it's supposed to be a year of Jubilee. Where not only are your sins forgiven, but there's a full redemption of all things. Hey, not only are your sins forgiven, but did you have to sell that property because you... uh, you went into abject poverty, you get your property back. Did you have to sell yourself into slavery because of whatever? You get your freedom back. Not only do you get your freedom back, you get your property. Because I'm going to assume that somebody's not going to jump straight to slavery. They're going to go, I got this piece of property, I'll sell it first. Okay, I still can't make my ends meet, I guess I'll sell me. I, I, I doubt anybody's going to bypass the property aspect and just sell themselves first. And so the person who had to sell themselves into slavery... Not only gets their freedom back, they get their property back also. So my sins are forgiven, my freedom is given, my property is returned. Full redemption happens every 50th day of atonement. Full redemption. Right standing with God, right standing with my brothers and sisters in the society in which I live. Friends, does that sound like anything you might have heard of before? Friends, the... The year of Jubilee is a very loud declaration in the of what happens 
when a person comes into Christ Jesus. I have all of my sins forgiven because it happens on the day of atonement. I have perfect and full right standing before God. But not only that, I'm no longer a slave. But friend, by the way, hear me this morning. If you're not in Christ, you're a slave. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to God's judgment. You're a slave to your nature of desiring sinful things. You're a slave to all of this. That's what you're a slave. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so now I have this redemption. I've been bought with a price. I've been set free in Christ Jesus. And not only that, I receive the property back. Well, what property do I get back? The land of Israel? No, not anything nearly that trite and small. What do I receive back? I receive back. Hear me this morning. This is going to sound kind of outlandish. But I receive back. Property wise, my physical person now rightly bearing the image of God. That's what I receive back because humanity. This is so hard for Americans. This is so hard for us because we're all about our land and our space. And trust me, if you ever have a private conversation with me about land and property taxes, you'd hear a libertarian to the core. That's what you'd hear. It's so hard for us as Americans to hear what I'm about to say. When man was created, he was created as a steward of the earth. The earth was not his possession. What did we pray this morning from the psalm? The earth is mine, says the Lord, and all who dwell in it. We were placed here as caretakers of God's creation, the pinnacle of his creation, those who bore his image in this physical realm. And so when we're redeemed in Christ, the promise of the future resurrection is just that one day our physical bodies will be so fully redeemed that we in our physical bodies will bear the image of Christ rightly for all eternity. That's the property we get back. This broken, dying, aching, easily diseased, sick body will one day not be like that anymore. Praise God. Hallelujah. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so we get all of our stuff back. I get forgiveness of sin. I get redemption and freedom. I get my I get the property back. And there's. All these beautiful things. And then, of course, they include laws about, all right, is it in a house inside of a city or is it in a house inside of a village? And what if you're incredibly poor and there's some additional laws and things about that that are found here? But what I want to touch on is I want to touch on the notion of Jesus as our Sabbath year, our jubilee and our full redemption. And so I'm going to start with the one that's kind of kind of out there. There's an eschatological, there's an end times reality To what's happening here. There are only two other direct references in the Old Testament about the year of Jubilee. Only two direct references. One is found in Leviticus 27 that we're going to touch on in a couple of weeks when we talk about the valuation of slaves. Two is in Numbers chapter 36 verse 4 where it talks about the year of Jubilee in relation to some of the events that are going on. That's the only two direct references, like very clearly direct references to the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. However, 
there are a host of indirect references to be found in the Old Testament where very likely it's alluding to this notion of the year of Jubilee. One of which is found in Ezekiel chapter 46. Now, we're not going to turn there. I'm just going to tell you, when you get to Ezekiel and you get in the 40s, weird. It's just weird. Okay. It's the Old Testament version of how weird the book of Revelation is in the New Testament. Like, really? Like, everybody's like, oh, Daniel, weird book. No, Daniel's pretty normal compared to the back end of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's weird. And so in Ezekiel, come along about chapter 39 or 40, you start having this kind of eschatological picture of this future great temple that's going to come and the city that's going to be built and this son of man, Messiah type person in Ezekiel's referenced as a son of man throughout this vision. And God carries him to this vision. Let me show you this prince. Just some random prince shows up on the scene. Like he just kind of gets inserted into this very weird story about this cosmic temple and all this other kind of stuff that's going on. Let me show you this great temple. Let me show you all its walls. And let me show you the city. Let me show you the sacrifices. Let me show you the inner sanctum and the sanctuary and the place where the altar is. And let me show you this prince. And they're like, wait, where'd the prince come from? He just kind of appeared. Listen, it's totally like Alice in Wonderland kind of deal. It's just like stuff's popping in and out. You're like, what in the world is all the stuff that's going on? But in the middle of all of this, this prince... Who, if you kind of make the connections that you probably should make throughout all of these chapters, is a reference to the messianic figure that's coming, the Messiah, likely a reference to who Jesus is going to be. This prince comes and he's the one who enacts this great year of liberty. And it kind of starts talking about this great year of freedom and liberty And it starts talking about it a lot like the year of Jubilee. Slaves are going to be set free and your property is going to come back to you and all this different kind of stuff. And and, and it's clearly talking about in the end when the great Messiah comes. So I just want to throw out there that there's a really strong concept that can be found in what Christ does in his future return. As far as fulfilling this notion of the Jubilee for us. Making all things exactly the way that they should be. It's a beautiful notion. But what did Christ do for sure in his new covenant ministry that we can that we can grab a hold of? I want you to flip over to Luke chapter four. I want you to flip over to Luke chapter four. And while you're turning to Luke chapter four from Leviticus, stop about part way and just kind of stick a finger in Isaiah just so that we can kind of go back there in just a second. So Luke chapter four with reference back to. Isaiah. Now, you don't have to reference back to Isaiah if you don't want to, because Luke's about to quote Isaiah, so it's okay. But here we go. Luke chapter 4. So Jesus is tempted, this is the beginning of the chapter, the temptation that Satan brings to him. He quotes the Old Testament, he quotes from Deuteronomy, he battles Satan with the word. And then Jesus... Starts having his public ministry. So per Luke's gospel. Jesus is baptized. Jesus is tempted. Jesus starts his public ministry. Every gospel writer writes their gospel a little bit differently. But this is how Luke writes his. Jesus is baptized. Jesus is tempted. 
Jesus starts his public ministry. So the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry, according to Luke, this is what happens. Start in verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned to Galilee and the power of the spirit and the news about him spread throughout all of the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and it was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up and he read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he sent me to uh, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim. Now, listen to the language here in the New Testament to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The year of blessing of the Lord, if you will. Another way that you could translate that. And he closed the book and he gave it to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what he reads here and what he's referencing is from Isaiah chapter 61. So if you want to turn back there, you can. Isaiah chapter 61. Beginning in verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners and to proclaim the favorable or the blessed year of the Lord. And and notice where he stopped off. The people in the synagogue would know what was next, even though he didn't read it. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. By the way, this is very similar to the agreements and the arrangements found in Leviticus chapter 25 of how the year of Jubilee works for those who are native born versus those who are foreign born versus those who are in the land who are not natively born from the land. But you will be called priests of the Lord and as will be spoken of ministers of our God and you will eat what? The wealth of the nations. You'll eat someone else's crop. When they go into the promised land, what does God tell them that's going to happen the first year that they get there? You're going to eat food that you did not plant. That's what's going to happen to you. Friends, when we cross over into the true and great promised land, what are we going to do? We're going to sit down at a banquet feast table. That's the language that's used about the great glory that is for those who are in Christ. And, And who prepared that table? I didn't. Somebody else did. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that's going on here. You'll eat the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. And instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, you'll shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion of the land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the love Lord, uh, Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and burnt offerings. And I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. That's out in the future. There is a future everlasting covenant coming. 
That's going to fulfill all of these notions of the year of Jubilee that are buried here in Isaiah chapter 61. And then their offspring will be known to the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples, and all who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. And I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So for so the earth brings forth its sprouts look the earth's just growing stuff without you cultivating it and as the garden causes the things sown to spring up so the lord god will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations and jesus said today in your hearing this has been fulfilled in me and friends i contend with you that isaiah 61 is one of those allusions back to the Jubilee of Leviticus chapter 25. When Jesus says, I've come to declare the favorable year of the Lord, the year of redemption, the year of deliverance, the year of reconciliation, the year of freedom of captives, the year where all things are made the way that they're supposed to be made. I have come not only to declare to you, but to fulfill in your presence that I, the Lord Jesus Christ, am the fulfillment of God's favorable jubilee blessing to his people. Not only will your sins be atoned for, but I will meet and exceed all of your expectations of what the kingdom of God should be. That's Jesus Christ. That's what he's come to do. And so when we hear things in the book of Leviticus about a year of Jubilee. When we see things in the Old Testament about full redemption and full forgiveness and full deliverance. Friends, think through what you already know about the New Testament. How many times do the writers of the letters of the New Testament go on and on and on and on about freedom from slavery found in Christ. Friends, whether you recognize it or not. Every single one of us is captive to our sin. Slaves to the judgment of God and the wrath to come. And the Lord Jesus Christ by taking on God's wrath, by taking our place on the cross, by giving to us his righteousness and his right standing, by being the fulfillment of all the sacrifices that we've seen to this point in the book of Leviticus, he and only he is our true year of Jubilee. Giving us full forgiveness of sin, full redemption of self, Full right standing before God and full right standing with each other. This is what Christ Jesus has done for us. He allows us to feast on food that we did not prepare. He allows us to be provided with everything that we need when we had nothing to give back in return. Friends, this is the beauty of Leviticus 25. Is that Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. And in speculation as we close, in my own brief speculation, why do I think the nation of Israel has never recorded 
that they actually did this event? Because they just couldn't. It's not really something that you can pull off. How's that functionally going to work? There's a lot of selfishness that would keep you from doing it for sure. But how's that functionally going to work? Let's say one quarter of your population has entered into abject poverty and you've put them at a hired hand and you've taken their property away from them. And you've started to build your life around the wealth that's built from the fact that he's working for you and you're earning resources off of his property that he doesn't have access to anymore. And then all of a sudden you've given that to your kids and they're doing the same thing. And now year 50 rolls around and you just got to hand it all back. There's a lot of motivation not to do that. But do you know who's not motivated to not do that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is his already. And he is delighted. Hear this. Listen, this is the difference between Jesus and us. One of the many differences. Everything is his already. And he is delighted to share it with his people. Jesus Christ, it says in the book of Philippians and in Colossians and in Hebrews, in essence, laid down the fullness of his glory as God. And veiled himself in flesh like us. That we might be able to participate in his heavenly reality. If you want to take the picture of the land space in Leviticus 25. Where God says, look, the land's not yours, it's mine. Let's escalate that to the heavenly tabernacle and the invisible realm and the heavenly presence of God. None of that is ours. I have no stake on any possession, any stone, any rock, any jewel, any bar on any gate, any wood plank on any house, in the heavenly realms, in the throne room of God. None. It is not mine. And God in Christ looks at me and says, come on in. Take a seat. In fact, sit on a throne with me. And I will put one of my crowns on your head. And I'll robe you in the royal gown of righteousness. And I will consider you a co-heir of all of eternity and glory with my son, Jesus. So, Philip, that's blasphemy. No, that's the new covenant reality of full redemption and the great jubilee that Jesus has brought us. And I will feast on food that I did not grow. And I will rule and reign in a kingdom that is not mine. And I will wear a robe of righteousness that I do not deserve. And I will bear the name of Jesus forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is our year of jubilee. 
the true, heavenly, real, atoning, redemptive jubilee. And Father, may our hearts and our lives and our minds be transformed at how glorious of a thought that is. Lowly, broken, sin-enslaved captives that we were. Not only set free, but set free as recipients of the inheritance of Jesus Christ himself. As your word says, partakers in his glory. What an amazing Savior. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing.